Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Christianity, like other religions, but especially Christianity, is making a claim that cuts against the grain of human nature in certain profound ways. And it's not surprising that that claim is not always and everywhere fulfilled, and often it's just sort of becomes a gloss on tribalism. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Sean Ailing, filling in for Ezra Klein. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Ross Douthat, who, of course, is a conservative columnist at The New York Times and the co-host of a new podcast, The Argument. One of the things I appreciate about Ezra's show is that it's a genuine space for conversation, not debate, which is a very, very different thing. And Ross is a thoughtful conservative with whom I rarely agree, but almost always learn something when I read one of his columns. And our topic today is intentionally broad. And it's around a question Ross poses often in his columns. And that is, is America experiencing something like a spiritual crisis? And relatedly, is the decline of institutionalized Christianity making our politics worse, more tribal, more violent, more combustible. This isn't really about Ross and I disagreeing, although we certainly do at points. I just think it's a really interesting way to get at some of the cultural roots of our political problems at the moment. And I hope you feel the same way after hearing it. As always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Ross Douthat. Ross Douthat, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So there are a hundred different ways we could dive into this conversation, but I think I'll just start with a paradox that you pointed to in one of your columns. You write, our unusual president couldn't have been elected and couldn't survive politically today without the support of religious conservatives, but at the same time, his ascent was intimately connected to the secularization of conservatism. And his style gives us a taste of what to expect from a post-religious right. Now, we'll talk more about the post-religious right a little later. I think for now, I would just love to know what you find so paradoxical about or surprising about religious conservatives supporting Donald Trump. Well, I mean, to some extent, I find the same things surprising that everybody finds surprising, right? And so far as Trump in his personal life and basically his entire career up until a few years ago um, seemed to be the embodiment of trends and personal behaviors and everything else that the religious right in its original incarnation in the 1970s and 80s imagined itself to be opposing. Um, but I think the 
the paradox, if, if that's the right word for it, is that if you look at Trump's ascent during the Republican primaries in 2016, if you look at sort of where his core support was found, it this is not universal. Obviously, there were, you know, church-going Republicans who were all in for Trump from the beginning. You know, Jerry Falwell Jr. was there for him from pretty early on. But there's a broad pattern where he does better among Republican voters who are more secularized. He does very well among what you might call cultural evangelicals, which is to say evangelical Christians who um, identify as evangelical but don't hardly ever go to church or hardly ever go to church, I should say. And he wins basically sort of against candidates who are more likely to rally churchgoers. Um, older religious conservatives were more likely to vote for Ted Cruz and younger, well-educated religious conservatives often supported Marco Rubio. So Trump is sort of rallying a coalition of the kind of, at the very least, non-practicing parts of the Republican Party. Um, so that's sort of where he comes from. And then you would sort of imagine that, all right, well, you get this candidate who wins the nomination and isn't a religious conservative and doesn't win tons of support from religious conservatives in the primary. So, you know, he's going to have a tough time getting religious conservatives to turn out for him in the general election. And in fact, that doesn't really happen. Um, he does as well, if not better. Uh, with some religious conservatives than prior Republican nominees. And, and that's where the, you know, the sort of fascinating reality enters in, right, which is that the decline of sort of institutional forms of Christianity make it easier for Trump to win a primary. And then that same decline creates this sense of anxiety blurring into panic among religious conservatives about their larger position in American culture and American society that in turn makes them swallow hard and vote for Trump because the alternative is a political coalition um, that seems to be totally arrayed against their interests. So that's that's sort of that's sort of a, a probably too long winded account of what what I think was was going on and is still going on with religious conservative support for Trump. Although it should I should also say that Trump, I think, very consciously and strategically sort of offered a kind of transactional relationship to religious conservatives, especially past a certain point in the primary campaign when it became clear that he had a real chance of winning the nomination. And he sort of held up that end of the bargain in various ways with sort of Mike Pence as the literal embodiment of that bargain in the executive branch. Yeah, you know, it's part of what's interesting to me is that, you know, I've noticed there's a lot of surprise from people that, you know, so many Christians were so unchristlike in their politics. But that doesn't seem all that surprising to me, right? I mean, this is not exactly new. I mean, people in the religious right have potentially for good reasons elevated political expediency over religious principles before. I mean, a lot of Christians, when they enter the political realm, sort of take their Christianity a la carte, or maybe more fairly, you could just say they realize that. Politics is separate from religion, and in order to get involved, you have to sort of compromise yourself. And so that I didn't find it all that shocking at all. It, it sounds like you didn't either. I mean, I didn't up to a point. I, I, I would say that the extremity of Trump's personal hedonism is – the willingness to go along with that aspect of Trump shocked me a little bit, 
I, I would say. I, I think it's, you know, it's one thing to say, all right, you know, maybe Ronald Reagan isn't the most frequent churchgoer and he was divorced a long time ago and we're not going to let that bother us. It's another thing to have a guy as your nominee who's you know, wife's nude pictorial is literally leaked in the middle of the presidential campaign, um, and nobody even cares, right? <laughs> I mean, so right. so I think I think there's sort of there's clearly a sense in which religious conservatives, like all religious people, have always made compromises when they've entered the political arena. But the scale of the compromise, in terms of sort of who their standard bearer would be, that they made with Trump, was still remarkable and striking. I mean, do you think there was some? point at which the religious right, which really in this context is is the, the, the Christian right, made a very clear compromise. I know there was an article, I think it was a Kevin Cruz essay in Politico in 2014, maybe 2015, and he sort of made the case that American Christianity was co-opted by you know, corporate America in the 40s that, just to sort of lay this out really quickly for readers, the, the basic argument was that, you know, Big business uh, had an image problem, uh, you know, right after the Great Depression, and they realized that they needed religious cover for what was basically just a libertarian worldview, and so they co-opted American clergy and got them to sort of begin to demonize the state, to exalt individualism, to equate secularism with any form of socialism, and that this is sort of this is how you get the prosperity gospel. This is how you get. Christian politicians, you know, worshiping at the altar of Ayn Rand and all the rest. I mean, do you buy that narrative or do you think it's missing something or just wrong? I, th I think the weakness of it is just that it puts too much emphasis on sort of the idea that, you know, there's sort of cons conscious ma machination behind the scenes. And, you know, if you can just find, you know, this small group of people who came up with this plan, you can explain everything. Um, and in fact, you know, the link between... American Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity and sort of what you might call commercial culture in the US is very deep and goes way back before the 1940s and 1950s. And at the same time, the context, you know, the, the context of American politics and religious politics in that era is the Cold War in which the sort of dominant force embodying something that at least styles itself as anti-capitalist is also something that styles itself very consciously as atheist, post-religious, anti-Christian, you know, the Marxist regimes that literally persecute Christians and so on. And so I think in that sense, the kind of post-war, you know, God loves capitalism side of American politics was kind of overdetermined and spending a lot of time looking at sort of the particular corporate boosters makes it seem like more of a conspiracy when in fact it's a more natural outgrowth of deep American trends in the particular Cold War context, I guess. And also that's an era too where, you know, it's it's by no means obvious from the vantage point of 1955 that sort of the combination of free market ideology and American Christianity is going to unite. And the reason it unites ultimately, at least for a period of time, isn't the decisions that corporations make in the 40s and 50s. It's the consequences of dramatic cultural change in the 60s and 70s, which pushes, for instance, a big chunk of Catholic voters who were sort of the backbone of a kind of more socially democratic pro-welfare state Christian politics 
into the Republican Party because the Democratic Party becomes, you know, the the party of abortion rights and sexual liberation. So I, I think you can't tell this like that, too, is sort of a deep trend that plays a bigger role than the sort of individual specific corporate strategies that um, Kevin Cruz is talking about, I think. Well, connecting some of this back to Trump, and I think this is something that you pointed to in that same column. There was a study by Emily Eakin, I believe that's her name, from the Cato Institute, and she yep. basically found that among Trump supporters, those who attended church the least, not who is simply identified as religious or Christian, but who actually went to church the least, reported that being white was very important to them. How do you make sense of that? I mean, I think that's a very predictable sociological story about um, the extent to which religious identity and other forms of identity can sort of swap in for each other, right? And that one of the things that religious participation satisfies is the human desire for belonging, the very natural human tendency towards tribalism can be channeled into a sort of the more universal tribe of a particular church. And if it isn't so channeled, then it often gets channeled in other directions, right? And so I think what you see in the US right now with that trend is a, a much less destructive and much smaller scale version of the role that sort of, you know, European nationalism in the late 19th and early 20th century played in sort of replacing religious identities and sort of, you know, and not in sort of a, a completely like, we're just replacing French Catholicism with French nationalism kind of way. Obviously, the nationalists often relied on, you know, religious ideas and religious impulses. It was all fairly blurry. But there's a historian named Michael Burley who's written sort of a trilogy of books. I think the first one is called Earthly Powers that sort of traces the extent to which sort of the weakness of institutional religion, um, the role that sort of state formation and the sort of building of national identities associated with that played in sort of making war on older religious institutions. You know, the, the, the reunification of Italy was accomplished at the expense of the Catholic Church. Otto von Bismarck had his Kulturkampf against Roman Catholicism in Germany. That You know, that in all of those cases, you can see that sort of national identity becomes a substitute for religious identity in a pretty a pretty understandable way. Yeah, I think I want to put a pin in the tribalism aspect of this because we're going to circle back to it. And I, I think it's probably a pretty clarifying point of divergence perhaps between you and I. But I, I want to linger for now on this link that you're pointing out between support for populism and I guess what you would call a kind of communal breakdown uh, or a loss of social capital. Maybe the real question here is whether secularization is what's responsible for this breakdown, for this loss of social capital. Is that more or less how you see it? I mean, I'm sort of a – I don't love the word secularization because I think it implies something more post-religious than the actual human cultures we're describing. Um, I, I think it's more the weakness of – religious institutions and religious orthodoxies. And so what's happened in Western culture in different ways in Europe and the United States is not so much the disappearance of religious impulses and supernatural beliefs 
it isn't always the diminishment of even religious practice. It's the diminishment of sort of structures and conventional belief systems that contain religious impulses and channel them in particular ways and set social expectations and, you know, a whole variety of things. And I think it's that breakdown, which is, I think, the real the story of American religion since the 50s and 60s, a kind of steady, slow motion institutional breakdown that, yeah, that does explain at least some of the appeal of populism. Along with, you know, many, many things explain the appeal of populism, right? I mean, it's, yes. it's we're, we're, we're talking about religion here, but I, I you know, I, I want to say that for listeners, this is the points I'm making are not meant to exclude, you know, 16 other variables that go into the, go into the making of our populist moment. You know, this is so fascinating to me as someone who in a previous life was a political theorist, this question of whether a community or a culture needs a shared higher ideal you know some unimpeachable consensus about how to live and which values to affirm and this question of whether or not christianity was for many many years the source of this consensus and now that that foundation has been shattered or at least damaged that we're left sort of at sea, as it were. And that seems to be what you think has happened. Is that right? Or am I mischaracterizing your view? So I think that's partially right. But I I, I think there's a different way to put it is that, so Europe and the US are different, right? If you're talking about Europe, the shattering of Christianity happened in many ways, like 100 to 150 years ago. And the people who said, well, if you shatter Christianity, you're going to get, you know, this sort of war of all against all and this total apocalypse, we're actually, we're right. <laughs> and we got that apocalypse and we lived through it. And now we're sort of on the other side, right? So the, the sort of post-Christian apocalypse, that happened in Germany. Um, it happened all over Europe in various ways in the first half of the 20th century. And some of what we're doing is you know, we're, we're in certain ways, we're not, we, we sort of got the period where we unleashed the demons. And that was, you know, the age of totalitarianism and the age of extremes. And that was so awful that people have sort of retreated back into a kind of limp pseudo-Christian moral consensus that is incoherent in certain ways because it's not trying to be coherent. But it's sort of the governing framework of the post-war world. Now, I think America is a somewhat different story because we didn't have the apocalypse. And in America, you could, you could argue that we're, maybe we're still waiting for it to happen, right? That sort of Christianity was famously stronger here than in Europe. And it was sort of a, a cliche of the conventional wisdom 20 or 25 years ago that Europe was secular and America was still very religious. And now it's a moderately correct cliche that religion has weakened in the U.S. over the last generation or so. So you could, yeah, you, you, I think you could make an argument that there is some post-Christian apocalypse that awaits us, maybe. But in Europe, I think it's clear that it happened already, and we're sort of living in its aftermath. I mean, what is it that you think is most responsible for this institutional collapse of Christianity? Is it simply the progress of secular culture? Is it that the metaphysical justifications for Christianity have just been, you know, pulverized uh, by, you know, hundreds of years of science? Or is it some other 
uh, you know, cultural movement or forces that is that has pushed us to where we are today? Um, I mean, it's overdetermined, right? All, all of those, all of those things have played a role. I would say that I'm drawn towards sort of structural technological arguments in certain ways more than cultural ones, just because people in our profession like to emphasize, you know, the role of ideas because we write about ideas for a living. Um, but sometimes you can tell an equally coherent story where the ideas just sort of follow the technological shock. So like if you're, again, if you're looking at the US, right, you know, institutional Christianity looks very strong in 1957 and much, much weaker in 1977. And is that the result of like, you know, a certain set of ideas becoming ascendant, some combination of skepticism and sort of scientism and liberal forms of religion triumphing over conservative ones? Maybe, but you could just, you could tell a pretty simple story about money and sex, right? That sort of Christianity is a religion that emphasizes the importance of chastity and poverty and post-war America got rich on a scale that no country had been rich before. And by the way, we also invented the birth control pill in the middle of that era of immense wealth. And so the strictures and rigors of traditional Christianity just looked a lot less appealing to a large number of people. And I, I don't think that's the complete story, but I think those kind of things are worth emphasizing, right? That sort of that that you can have a structure, a religious structure that looks pretty solid, and then some technological shock or economic shock can come along and and then it doesn't it doesn't look solid anymore. Um, but there's also been this ebb and flow, right? Where, you know, if you look at the the world circa 1805, it seemed like institutional Christianity is totally doomed in Western Europe. You know, the Pope is being imprisoned by French revolutionaries and nobody's going to church in England and so on. And then, you know, and then you get this period in the 19th century when whether it's the Great Awakenings in the US or various reform and renewal movements in Europe, you get sort of institutional religion kind of figuring out how to work with the new industrial civilization, how to offer something in effect to the new industrial civilization. And you get this sort of temporary, in hindsight, period of religious revival, right? Like, I mean, within Catholicism, Catholicism looks finished in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, and then by the late 19th and early 20th century, it suddenly seems incredibly vital and institutionally effective again. And the Pope is claiming, you know, is claiming stronger theological powers, even as his political powers have ebbed and so on. So it's a, it's a complicated story. Yeah. And look, we could probably argue for, for days about, you know, all the causes of this, but I think we could probably agree that there has been a pretty clear trajectory of cultural decadence. And, and Christianity, I think, has to take some responsibility for that, right? I mean, when the great public lights of Christianity are, you know, what I would call religious entrepreneurs, people like Joel Alstein and, 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 and Franklin Graham, and, you know, we're a long way from T.S. Eliot and Reinhold Niebuhr, right? I mean, this is, they're, they're, Christianity has sort of sealed its own fate in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, in that period that I'm describing, that sort of 1950s to 1970s period, you know, whatever the cause is, you have a sharp decline in the conditions that seem to produce really important Christian writers, intellectuals, thinkers, and so on. Some of that is that the smartest minds of Christianity, right, the people who are 
you know, more serious than Osteen or Franklin Graham can't agree on how Christianity should respond to, let's say, the sexual revolution, right? So, you know, if you go back and read Eliot and Niebuhr and Auden and, you know, the sort of these figures from the 40s and 50s, they're not really arguing about, like, what the Christian position on divorce should be. These are not sort of the salient issues of the Christian intellectual moment in the 40s and 50s. And once those become the salient issues, you get this polarization where Christian intellectuals, instead of speaking to the culture as a whole, whatever that may be, are mostly arguing with each other, um, you know, about how much should Catholicism reform, how, you know, is liberal Protestantism, you know, is, is I mean, just sort of something like same-sex marriage becomes this sort of endless argument where you have, you know, Catholic intellectuals and Protestant intellectuals on on both sides. And I, I don't think the Christian intellectual culture has found a way out of that trap. Instead, I think we just keep cycling back to those same debates. We're having the same debates in the Catholic Church under Pope Francis that we had under Paul VI 40 or 50 years ago. And the main change is that the the caliber of the intellectuals involved has declined, right? I mean, it's it's striking to yeah. me since I'm involved in some of these debates personally, right, that like, you know, if, if you think of the 60s and 70s in, in Catholicism, there are these huge titanic intellectuals of whom Joseph Ratzinger, who ultimately became Pope Benedict, was just one. He was one of the more conservative, but, you know, you have Hans Kung and Henri de Lubac and all these figures who sort of created the Second Vatican Council and then argued about it. And then you flash forward 50 years, and when I look at the debates about Pope Francis, it's, you know, a bunch of journalists squabbling with each other, right? You know, sort of pund pundits and hacks arguing about the future of Catholicism. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of them, so nothing against them. But there's, yeah, there's clearly been some sort of decline in the caliber of people who I think are drawn to these traditions in certain ways, uh, maybe precisely because the traditions just seem consumed with arguing internally about what to do next. You know, I think there's a a pretty revealing area of agreement here uh, on the right and the left about the role of capitalism in all of this. I mean, you have really smart, thoughtful people on the right, uh, political theorists like you know Patrick Deneen, who you know more or less argue that you know consumerism, neoliberalism, the global hyper-competitive marketplace. I mean, that these these are the primary forces that have individualized our culture, that have exploded communities and really undercut Christianity as much as anything else. Yeah, but I, I think there's a danger in being sort of over-inevitabilist about yeah. some of this stuff, right? I mean, again, like, you know, if you look at what I was talking about earlier, right, the Industrial Revolution, right, this tremendous period of capitalist-driven social change, institutional Christianity suffers in many ways during that period, but churches also find ways to adapt. You know, the 19th century is a period of awakenings in the U.S. It's a period ultimately of sort of recovery and seeming resilience for Catholicism. And, you know, you can see similar things in other parts of the world today, right, that, you know, as China has become more capitalist, for instance, it has also become more Christian. As Africa has become more developed, it has also become more Christian. So I think it's, it's you don't want to say, oh, it's just capitalism per se. There's something about the stage of capitalism that we have arrived at in the developed world 
and how it interacts with socio-cultural trends and political assumptions and so on that has brought um, institutional religion into a kind of decadence. Um, and it's not it's not so simple as saying, well, once you have capitalism, I mean, th there's a story that sort of reactionaries, like real reactionaries, of which uh, Pat Tadid sometimes is one, like to tell, right? Where you know it all went wrong with the Protestant Reformation, <laughs> right? It all it all it all went wrong in early modernity. Uh, there's a book by Brad Gregory, a historian at Notre Dame, that's sort of a sketch of the last 500 years, and he basically the story is because of Martin Luther, we're going to destroy the world with climate change, right? And, you know, as a reactionary Catholic myself, I, I have a certain fondness for those arguments, but I think they can be, I think you want to be wary of that sort of overdetermined, you know, liberalism plus capitalism must equal the destruction of Christianity because repeatedly institutional churches have found ways to adapt and thrive in con the conditions of modernity. And there's no necessary reason why they couldn't again, maybe. No, I think that's right. I, I probably stated it uh, a little more heavy-handed than I intended, uh, but I, I certainly take all those points. I mean, I, I think we'd probably be remiss if we didn't at least mention the fusion between the religious right and the Republican Party. I, I think that on a sufficiently long timeline has been very bad for American Christianity, even though I think it paid dividends in the short to medium term. I, I think it did long-term damage to the state and the credibility of American Christianity. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. But again, just in the interests of sort of defending something that's taken a lot of justifiable criticism recently, you know, you, you can tell a story, I think, you know, if you go back to like the early days of George W. Bush's presidency, right, where you can say, okay, look, religious conservatives made this alliance with the Republican Party that had to do with sort of resistance to the cultural revolutions of the 60s and 70s and resistance to Soviet communism. And once the Cold War was finished, then um, the alliance with sort of a stringent libertarianism didn't make as much sense anymore. And you needed a kind of return of serious sort of Christian social thinking about the problems with capitalism, how you design a welfare state and so on. And that's what we're going to try and do with Bush and compassionate conservatism and, you know, what ended up being called big government conservatism and everything else. And that project sort of collapses between, you know, through incompetent execution slash the effects of the Iraq war slash the global financial crisis and so on. But it's not as if there weren't people involved with it who didn't see the problem of just sort of having a kind of Ayn Randian religious right. Um, it's just that their efforts were ultimately unsuccessful, right? But they, you know, there was the association between conservative Christians and the political and sort of political and economic right was forged in a Cold War environment that made it much more understandable than it is today, but also more defensible, I think. Now's probably a good place to pivot to what it's probably the the meat of this discussion, um, and that is sort of this relationship between a declining Christianity and the retribalization of our politics. So, in that New York Times column that I quoted at the beginning of this conversation, you basically argued that you know, look, the left may not like the Christian right, but it'll really hate the 
post-Christian, right? What did you mean by that? I mean, I just meant that the natural place for right-wing politics to go when it loses any grounding in sort of Christian conceptions of the human person is towards a harsher form of nationalism that is usually racially mediated. And we saw this happen in European politics, and you can, you know, in certain ways see it happen happening in right-wing politics in the U.S. It's complicated by the fact that in Europe, as in the U.S., a lot of conservative Christians ended up making alliances with these kind of post-Christian nationalists out of fear of the left. So it's not just the case that like, oh, there are these, you know, innocent conservative Christians who are overtaken by the nationalists and destroyed by them. No, I mean, the conservative Christians often helped the nationalists come to power. But I think it's definitely the case, and you see this among liberals right now, right, that like the compassionate conservatism of George W. Bush the, you know, AIDS in Africa, kind of, you know, the sort of the 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 most religiously infused parts of his policymaking, with the arguable exception of his crusade to promote democracy in the Middle East, are the things that a lot of liberals are nostalgic for in the age of Trump. Yeah, you know, I think I think it was Peter Beinhart had a pretty good Atlantic piece maybe last year or the year before that where he was juxtaposing the clash of a you know post-Christian perspective on the left and the right and you know he compares the the Christian oriented civil rights movement with the Black Lives Matter movement which is in many ways post-Christian and much more revolutionary in its motivations as opposed to more reformist like the civil rights movement and of course, on the right, post-Christian politics has become more reactionary, more nativist, although I think that is overly simplistic, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, but, but I guess his larger point was that all of this has made our politics more zero-sum, and the decline of religion has a you know, significant causal role in that process. And you're wondering if I agree? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if that's, I mean, if that, if you think that argument more or less gets it right, or if you think that is missing something perhaps essential. I mean, I, I think that there's no question that if you're talking about sort of the virtues of a center, right, and not everybody agrees, right, <laughs> that there are sort of virtues in having, having a center, you know, there's a lot of reasonable critiques of a politics of consensus and so on. Um, but to the extent that it's a virtue to have some sort of clear sense of a center, a common ground in a nation state's politics, it's hard to have that without that culture having some kind of religious common ground. And, you know, the United States was and remained basically a country that had a sort of semi-established church for most of its history in the form of what we call the main, mainline Protestantism, right? And it wasn't established in a formal sense, and it obviously contained many competing denominations, and there were lots of complexities within it. But there was a pretty clear sort of Protestant moral consensus and a Protestant understanding of you know, the human person and a lot of different things to which... Catholicism and Judaism both sort of had to adapt in their efforts to sort of assimilate to American culture. And, you know, that didn't prevent conflict. I mean, we, you know, there was issues that that Protestant consensus simply couldn't solve. And I think you can understand the American Civil War pretty usefully as a kind of religious war within American Protestantism. But it was a consensus that that did 
have real uses. Like, you know, if you look at sort of Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, right, it's sort of, it's an appeal to that consensus. It's an appeal to sort of the shared moral traditions of a lot of different Protestant and Catholic um, Catholic Americans. And that, in that sense, the collapse of the Protestant mainline as a in powerful institutional force in American life over the last 30 or 40 years is a big and somewhat underappreciated story. And it has made it harder, um, I think, to sort of have a kind of common ground in debates. It's harder for Black Lives Matters to make an appeal to people who don't immediately agree with them than it was for the civil rights movement because there isn't this sort of common language of Protestant-ish Christianity to appeal to. But I mean, the weird thing is, and I, you know, we're, I know we're having this conversation in sort of the shadow of, of Ezra, <laughs> Ezra Klein, Andrew, the Andrew Sullivan, Ezra Klein discussion of this thing, right? But it, it is also the case that, you know, America is more civically at peace now in certain ways than it was in many of the years when this consensus seemed to prevail, right? I mean, we're not we don't have 1960s-style riots. We don't have political violence on the scale of previous eras in American history. So we have this, this odd dynamic where the disappearance of that center has made our politics more polarized and more poisonous, but that hasn't led to um, the kind of sort of actual, I think, well, just the actual level of violence that we've had in the American past. So you sort of are holding those both of those balls in your hand at the same time, right, in assessing how much of a difference um, religious consensus makes because it didn't prevent violence in the past. It just sort of hopefully mediated and contained it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Ezra Sullivan conversation because I'm actually quite sympathetic to the general argument that that for many years Christianity functioned as a kind of socio-cultural glue that held the country together. In fact, I, I think that's obviously true in many ways. But but here's the thing, and I'll sort of restate this uh, for people who may not have heard the conversation between Ezra. So when you and people like my friend Andrew Sullivan you know, look at the vacuum created by the collapse of Christianity – and you see, you know, social justice warriors and identity politics sort of naturally filling that void. But, you know, I look at that same picture and I see something very different, right? I see the collapse of a social structure in which a white majority wielded a disproportionate amount of political power. And now various marginalized groups are asserting themselves in the public sphere, right? And, you know, that's obviously creating some tension. And so to the extent that all of that's true, I'm not sure how much causal significance Christianity has in that story. It's just simply a matter of groups who did not get to participate in that happy consensus uh, are now have a role and a voice. And that has created, um, in many ways, a very untenable political situation. Yeah. I mean, I guess – so again, I'm not – I think I'm less concerned than Andrew is about – you know, the possible descent into, you know, the nightmare of the 1930s, um, because in certain ways, I think our society is sort of too old and rich and risk averse <laughs> for people to sort of go in for full scale street fight type politics. So so in that in that sense, I, I'm, I'm not as alarmed by sort of the, you know, social justice warriors versus alt-right 1930s echoes, or not every day, sometimes I'm alarmed, it varies. 
But I don't think the story about marginalized groups is incompatible with the story about the importance of having having a religious consensus, right? Because it is not as if this is the first time that um, marginalized groups in American history have made political claims, right? I mean, the story, you know, I mean, what what was the story of American Catholicism, right, across the 19th and early 20th century, if not the story of a group that was like literally the other, right, the great religious other for Anglo-American culture for a long time, sort of trying to integrate itself into American society, right? And, and you know, you can tell the same story about specific ethnic groups, like, you know, what we talk about is like a monolithic whiteness is forged by all kinds of ethnic groups from Europe, many of which face, you know, sort of racist stereotypes and, and discrimination and so on, sort of making claims and trying to integrate and trying to claim power and contending for power in American life and so on. And, you know, this the same, you know, there's there's no precise analog for gay people, but certainly for women, you have a long period of sort of female activism in the 19th century. Women play a huge role in the sort of progressive reform movements of late 19th and early 20th century. You have the suffragettes as this, you know, significant political force. And so all of that has, it's not that sort of this is the first moment in American history when racial minorities or women have, you know, tried to contend for power. It's just a particular version of this old story that's taking place in a landscape where there's just more, you know, there's more theological difference. There's more metaphysical space between the world picture of today's secular liberal feminist and today's religious conservative than there would have been between the worldview, the metaphysical world picture of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and someone who was, you know, a Protestant opponent of women's suffrage. Maybe that doesn't make a difference in the end. Maybe we can all, you know, maybe we can all sort it out just as effectively or more effectively than in the past. But there is something that's changed in how these disparate groups relate potentially to each other. Black Lives Matters is further in its picture of like what the universe is <laughs> from the typical Trump voter than Martin Luther King was from Jerry Falwell Sr., Right. Like, and, and that's that's a real difference, and we're going to find out how big a difference it makes for the culture, I guess, over the next 50 years or so. Do you buy uh, Andrew's argument that, you know, the religion may be fading, but the religious impulse persists and that it's being manifested in all these various, you know, identitarian movements that we're seeing today uh, and that, you know, the boundaries of identity are just simply getting redrawn in the wake of religion? Because... I, that may well be true. I just don't know what to do about it. I don't know where that leaves us. I mean, are we supposed to conclude, as I think Andrew does, that liberal democracy, at least in the United States, is impossible without, you know, a kind of tamed version of Christianity to moderate it? I mean, is that is that more or less what you think or or, or what? I don't know. I'm, I'm uncertain. I mean, I wrote, uh, I guess, an entire book about seven years ago now making sort of a version of that argument. The the argument I made in this book, it was called Bad Religion, was that American history had been distinguished by this kind of fruitful tension between institutional forms of religion and kind of entrepreneurial heresies, right? Meaning heresy not in a sort of strict, you know, you're violating Catholic doctrine kind of way, but in a more general, you know, people taking a piece of the Christian tradition and going off and, you know, starting 
the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints or the Christian scientists, you know, and, and so on. And I think the story I told in that book was that the the problem for American culture now isn't so much the heresies. It isn't so much all this religious energy running loose. It's that it there isn't any sort of resilient institutional forces to for it to sort of push against in intellectually fruitful ways, but also to sort of ultimately you know, take that energy back in and channel it through institutions, through the practices that I think deliver a lot of basic social goods that even secular Americans appreciate. So so in that sense, it's, I, I guess that overlaps with Andrew's view, I think. I, I mean, I do think that a healthy America depends on religious institutions and not just sort of religious impulses running free. But, you know, I'm also a Catholic, right, as is Andrew, but I'm a somewhat more conservative and skeptical of modernity Catholic than Andrew is. And, you know, from a Catholic perspective, you also have to take the whole American experience, you know, with, with a skeptical eye, right, because it's a Protestant story. And maybe it's true that sort of this is where Protestantism ends up, right? There's, I think, an argument that mainline Christianity didn't collapse that it actually sort of fulfilled its ultimate destiny, right, by sort of shedding the carapace of actual churches and just becoming this free-floating humanitarian worldview. Um, and in that sense, you know, maybe the people who have always been weirder in American life, the Catholics and the Jews and the Mormons, for that matter, you know, maybe it's up to us to sort of construct something for the next era of American religious history. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned your book, Bad Religion, and I think we still have this fundamental question that I'm not sure we've we've really answered, and I think I think the answer matters. Um, and you know, even in, in Bad Religion, you write that you know a Christian center is what held together quote teeming and diverse nation. But again, I guess what I'm really asking is, was it really Christianity that held a teeming diverse nation together, or was it a particular racial and social hierarchy that held it together? I mean, I, I think that it's it's obviously both, right? I mean, I don't think we have to... Every society in human history has been held together by its... or dominated, if you prefer, by its particular hierarchies. I think the question is, if you abstract from the rather important question of whether Christianity is true and just sort of talk about, like, well, what makes for a sort of stable and healthy republic over a long period of time, then, you know, I, I think you can tell a very plausible story in which institutional religion in American history is both a force for stability and a force for reform. And that the fact that the people who are trying to stabilize things, which means, you know, basically uphold existing hierarchies, and the people who are trying to reform, which means basically upending those hierarchies in various ways, share a common religious perspective, has been pretty helpful in preventing us, except for the obvious exception of race, slavery, the Civil War, from falling apart in various ways. Um, and so, so the fact that, you know, the robber barons and the progressive reformers, um, you know, were both often, let's say, Presbyterians or something mattered in terms of the, how, the pressures that the reformers were able to bring to bear on, on the society, the, you know, the ability to sort of create a consensus around certain post-Gilded Age reforms without sort of 
you know, entering the kind of, you know, communist and fascist alternatives that we got that we got in Europe. So I, I think you can, I, uh, you know, that's sort of the story I told in the book. I think that's a reasonable story. It doesn't exclude the reality of hierarchy and so on. Um, but it it casts, it looks at American history. I mean, I, I guess I guess what I'm, where I think I disagree with at least Ezra's initial depiction or, or response to Andrew and so on is, Amer I don't think that you can tell this story of American history as like, the rule of whiteness that just extends down to some period close to the present day when finally whiteness is being challenged, right? I think American history is way more complicated than that and features a much more of a sort of rise and fall and ebb and flow of different groups, different ethnic groups, different religious groups, always sort of contending and claiming power and so on. And the fact that this process led to this moment in the 1950s when you had this sort of white identity and this black minority making claims, that's more a sort of a contingent description of the world of 1945 to 64 than it is a really useful description of the whole of American history, especially outside the South. Um, you know, the South is obviously sort of a culture unto itself in certain ways. Right. It's just, it's just it, we just can't talk about uh, the harmonious role that Christianity played without talking about this hierarchy, right? Because it's you know it's not for nothing that you know Billy Graham, who you cite in the book, didn't march with Martin Luther King Jr. You know, I think the reasons for that are, are obvious enough, and that says something about the social order that uh, that that brand of Christian politics represented. I mean, I think that if you're a sort of the truer your radicalism, right, the more you might look at the mediating role that Christianity plays and say, it would be better if it weren't there playing this mediating role because, you know, we need the revolution, right? And and Graham is a really good test case, right? Because, yeah, Graham is a sort of soft supporter of the civil rights movement early on, who then sort of distances himself from King in certain crucial moments, but never sort of goes all the way into segregationist opposition. And Graham is therefore sort of a stand-in for, you know, I think a lot of white Christians in the South and not only in the South who were sort of, you know, sympathetic to the broad claims of the civil rights movement, really skeptical of its tactics, and, you know, were not the moral heroes of the story at all. But at the same time, those were the kind of people who sort of accepted and, you know, who supported the Civil Rights Act in the end, who sort of, you know, supported the ideal of integration, if not the reality and who made it possible for a certain amount of racial progress to be sort of made and accepted and for hard racism, for hard segregationism to be marginalized. And if you don't, if you think of that achievement as like way too limited, right, because then you get the right wing backlash and, you know, the promise of integration is never fulfilled, then you'll be really skeptical of Christianity's role. But if you see the gains of the civil rights movement as big real gains that were made without, you know, without sort of potential political disasters, then you'll say, well, you know, again, you're not, the Grams are not the heroes, but that sort of Christian common ground helped hold the country together and help Martin Luther King get a lot of things that would have been harder to get peacefully without it. Yeah, I think all of this gets at at least one of the reasons why people like me are a little suspicious of the sorts of arguments you might make about the centrality of 
Christianity to you know American political order. Because what you find on the instance uh, on the alt right, as you've written about, is this love for Christendom and uh, an indifference to Christianity. And so you know Christendom is seen as this you know, bedrock of of white European civilization. And while mo while most people on the religious right are not alt right and don't necessarily think in these terms at all. I don't know that it's possible to disentangle this connection. Christianity as an ethnic marker is sort of baked into American history, right? I mean, Christianity, the, the collapse of Christian identity and ethnic identity is baked into human history, right? From the beginning, local and national Christian churches have been the norm rather than the exception and sort of you know, if you look at the story of Eastern Orthodoxy, it's a story of national – I mean, basically, I'll – you know, putting on my Catholic hat, right? <laughs> the story of all non-Catholic Christian experiments seems to end in sort of a conflation of ethnic and religious identity. Um, and even in Catholicism, admittedly, French Catholicism is a sort of national church for a long time in a war with Rome and so on. So, I mean, there's, there's an inescapable reality there, right, which is that Christianity, like other religions, but especially Christianity, is making a claim that cuts against the grain of human nature in certain profound ways. And it's not surprising that that claim is not always and everywhere fulfilled, and often it's just sort of becomes a gloss on tribalism. But, you know, like, it doesn't mean that, I mean, just, just to take sort of the most obvious example, right, like, one of the huge facts shaping American history is the fact that white Americans enslave this huge population of black Africans. And the black Africans adopt the sort of quote unquote white religion of Christianity and not only adopt it, but use it very effectively as a weapon against their masters and oppressors over an extended period of time and ultimately build one of the richest and most interesting Christian cultures in the United States, right? And that's not a story about consensus per se. That's more a story about sort of just the, pow the power of religion to do unexpected things in history. But those stories are important qualifiers to a story where it's like, oh, you know, the history of America is a history of sort of white man's Christianity oppressing everybody. It's just, it's just, I'm just arguing it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, I think that's fair. But, you know, even that, that very weaponization of, of Christianity, as you put it, says something about the pliability of Christianity itself. It, it suggests that religion is a justification as much as it is a guide, that it's, that it's secondary to, uh, you know, fundamental political ambitions and that, you know, I think that cuts against this notion that that Christianity is just sort of you know fixed set of, of principles that you know tended to draw people upward or tended to promote uh, a certain kind of you know social cohesion. When in fact, it, it's always been used as an instrument by uh, people, however they you know however it was convenient to use at the time, given their you know their interest and and their and their aims. Yeah, that's true, but it's also true that. Specific religions create specific political realities and create specific contexts. And the anti-slavery movement would have still existed in some form, maybe, but would have been very different without the particular stamp that Christianity 
put upon it, right? I mean, you know, if you look at sort of even you don't have to look at the United States, you can look at like the history of the Spanish empire in the new world, right? To, to pick a sort of more, a more Catholic case rather than a Protestant case. There are many ways in which sort of the Spanish conquest of the new world just looks like the constant instrumentalization of Christianity in order to justify conquering new territory. At the same time, like from the beginning of the Spanish conquest, you literally have the king of Spain convening Christian theologians to have these epic debates about sort of, you know, the what becomes the basis for modern human rights law, right? Which is a new invention in world history and one that's shaped in many ways by particular Christian ideas. And a lot of the sort of, you know, the, the kind of mestizo culture of Latin America differs. I mean, I think there's like a clear difference between sort of how the Protestant culture of the United States relates to native inhabitants, for instance, and how the Catholic culture of Latin America relates to native inhabitants. And they're both sort of cruel and oppressive in different ways, the ways you'd expect conquering empires to be. But the Catholic culture creates a very different, you know, white native relationship than the Protestant culture for reasons that are, I think, connected to theology. Um, I, you know, I'm, go I'm going a little far afield here, but I, I just think like the idea that it is, of course, the case that theology is sort of constantly adapted by people in power to serve their ends, but it's also the case that they both slip away from the powerful, they can be adopted by the powerless in ways that are related to what the theologies themselves say, and they impose constraints even on powerful people um, in ways that other worldviews might not. How do you balance the loss of social capital that Christianity's decline has caused with or that has caused for the majority group, I should say? How do you balance that with the greater freedom that it has permitted for for women, for LGBT folks, for religious minorities, et cetera? I mean, look, the, like the important question is whether it's true, right? And you're looking at that sort of balance. Ultimately, there's an artificiality, is, I guess is what I'm saying, to some, to some of these arguments, right? Where the, the idea that the decline of Christianity leads to bad things is a useful point for Christians to make. And it's something that sort of people who are in this kind of, um, I don't want to impute this to you, but there are, there are a lot of people in the West who are, I think, are in a sort of like, wouldn't it be nice if it were true, but we can't believe that anymore kind of position with regard to Christianity. And that perspective, then, then this idea of sort of cultural dissolution then becomes sort of folded into that perspective where it's like, oh, if only this could be propped up a little bit, <laughs> right? Um, even though I don't really think it's true, if it could make a comeback, that would be nice. And, you know, those are, they're really interesting arguments, but in the end, it doesn't make a comeback if it's not true. And, you know, and I mean, or I, I shouldn't say that. It doesn't make a comeback unless people actually start to believe it's true again, right? These sort of sociological arguments do not convince anyone to actually start a church, revitalize a denomination or anything like that. And in that sense, the balancing, trying to weigh these, you know, goods and evils are, is, is always it's always one step removed from what is in the end sort of the more essential question i guess yeah and look yeah, i'm genuinely 
sympathetic to this, and I'm not necessarily sure that you're saying this. I think you might be. I think you might agree with this. But I'm sympathetic to the notion that American culture has been emptied of spiritual depth, that we've become a very hollow, a very vain, a very trivial culture. I just don't know what the solution is because I don't think we can resuscitate you know, some earlier version of Christianity that was anchored to a particular you know, moral and social order. And so I just don't know where that this leaves us, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it leaves us with the sort of more fundamental question that sort of the individual has to decide for themselves. I mean, it's, it's a landscape of opportunity, I think, for people who think they know what the new thing is going to be. The challenge to me is sort of less chaos than exhaustion. The danger is less that like Christianity has collapsed and all the furies are being unleashed and so on. I think that happens in some times and places. But in our era, it's more this sense of like, you know, we've reached sort of the end point of whatever Protestantization, secularization, you know, the decline of institutional religion, whatever that means, we, we've sort of reached its end point. And we're sort of rich and old and stuck and we don't, we don't feel like we can go back, um, but we don't know what's ahead. And we can't really believe that there is anything ahead. And that's sort of, that's a different fear than the fear of like imminent civil war, I guess. But that's sort of, yeah, that's, I mean, maybe we're in the same place in that sense, except that, you know, I think as a, as a Catholic and a Christian, I think that the truth is still out there. <laughs> well, as a lapsed Catholic, I'm, we probably diverge here. But I mean, look, I'll ask you this. You know, I mean, is there any version of a potential post-Christian America that you want to live in that you think is better? Than this one? Than this one? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm or really— even than the previous one, than the one from, you know, 50 years ago or 70 years ago or whatever. Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm torn, right? Because— on the one hand, I look at this sort of exhaustion and I don't like it. On the other hand, a lot of the genuinely post-Christian alternatives seem a lot worse, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you th there is a sense in which we Western culture sort of experimented with like really post-Christian worldviews and has recoiled from that for good reason. Um, but I'm very, uh, but I'm still, I can't help it. I'm still very interested in what seem like sort of post-Christian religious currents, right? Like I'm really interested in whether the combination of sort of new age practices and intellectual pantheism and so on could add up to like an actual an actual new paganism, right? Like, and that's a, a fraud and contested word, but I think it's, you know, it's still the best word we have to, to describe that. And I, I wrote a column about this a few months ago. Like, is there, is it possible to see in, you know, some combination of, um, you know, the fascination with mediums and spiritualism and sort of new age holistic stuff. And, you know, the the smart, the, I mean, I know, um, I know smart academics who think of themselves as pantheists, who think that sort of a view of the, of the divine as sort of something that permeates the universe rather than being outside it is a correct or serious view. And in that sort of cocktail, it seems to me that that's when you sort of get beyond heresy into a really genuinely post-Christian form of faith. Um, 
and as a Christian, the idea of of living in a world that's actually ruled by that form of faith is frightening. But at the same time, as someone who is sort of impatient with the exhaustion of our religious culture, I can't help be interested in in that stuff. Well, you know, I'm actually looking at a, a quote of yours from that from your column about you know kind of post Christian pagan future. You you write in that quote describing what this post-Christian pagan future looks like. What is that conception? Simply this, that divinity is fundamentally inside the world rather than outside it, that God or the gods or being are ultimately part of nature rather than an external creator, and that meaning and morality and metaphysical experience are to be sought in fuller communion with the imminent world rather than a leap toward the transcendent. So what's wrong with that? Because I read that and I nod my head affirmatively. That seems to me to be a leap forward. Why is that? Uh, why am I wrong? What do you? What What is fearful to you about that vision or that America, or that world? Um, you want you want the the actual case against paganism? I mean, the, I think I think the, the <laughs> Let's main. Let's get weird. Let's get weird. I mean, well, we'll you know, we'll we'll get very weird, right? I I, I think that there are divine forces or spiritual forces that do permeate the universe. I think I th I'm interested in pantheism and paganism because I think they might be true. The spiritual no less than the material dimension of reality might be read in tooth and claw, right? It, I mean, there's a reason that traditional paganisms conceived of gods who were kind of amoral, right? There's a reason that that conception of the universe coexisted with a level of sort of cruelty and hierarchy and oppression that was, I think, much more significant and substantial than what you have even in sort of the most hierarchical forms of, of the Christian world. Um, I, I think sort of assuming that the divine that we can see in the world is sort of the only divine there is actually points you more vigorously towards hierarchy and towards an acceptance of a certain amount of cruelty than does Christianity. I think to escape from cruelty, you need you need transcendence. You need something outside the world that both made the world and stands in judgment on it. And you know, there's a reason that in Christian cosmology, the prince of this world, the great spiritual power of this world, is the devil, right? And it's not. I, I don't think that sort of you know that sort of pantheism leads to devil worship, but I don't think it doesn't <laughs> either. <laughs> Right. Well, look, I mean, at the risk of getting even weirder, I'll respond to that because I think this is probably why we disagree about religion, while we probably agree about your general sort of social analysis. You know, the world that you describe in that, in that quote I read, I think is better because I think the transcendent impulse, uh, this need for some capital T truth, moral or otherwise, this idea that we have to have uh, an ethical dogma that, that trumps immediate experience. I think, I think all of these things have caused more harm in the world um, than anything else. And I think we have to find a way to get beyond it. Uh, I don't know what that looks like. Somebody smarter than me will have to. Some, I, I, some, some I think that's crazy, though. I mean, like, like, why do you actually want to live in, you know, the world of pre-Christian Rome? Like, you know, the the world. I mean, the world of pre-Christian Rome is a world of sort of metaphysical tolerance, where you know nobody's god is any better than anybody other anyone else's god, 
And those Christians are so annoying with their transcendental claims and they won't just give a pinch of incense and so on. But that the world is viciously hierarchical and cruel in ways that I think for good reason that, that you know, the modern, the modern liberal conscience would recoil against. If you don't like how biblical religion treats women, you're, you're really not going to like how like the gods of the city in the ancient world treat women. If you don't like Christianity's compromises with slavery, you're really not going to like how slavery was considered was considered in in you know in the ancient world. I mean, I I just think that there's and and this lurks right. Like it's not a coincidence that neo paganism in Europe in the late 19th and early 20th century that a lot of that energy literally gets vacuumed up into Nazi totalitarianism, right? Like the idea that sort of the imminent is the divine. Well, the imminent is hierarchy. The world presents hierarchy. It presents cruelty. You need you need to get outside it. I mean, you you may be right that we need uh, a transcendent anchor in that way for our 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 moral order. Maybe that's true. Um, I guess I'm just sort of constitutionally opposed to that, and and part of the reason why I think we pay too high a price for that. Right? I don't think we're necessarily divided by reality itself. I think we're divided by our ideas concerning reality, and the problem with religion and in most of its manifestations at least is that it's it's a it's a highly exalted form of in-group out-group thinking and and it only it sets the stakes you know as high as possible right the, like literal fate <laughs> of the individual soul and I, while I agree we have to find some basis for cooperation I, I don't know that that's the best or and I certainly don't think even if it is that we can go backwards and resuscitate it. So again, I guess I don't know where that leaves us. Um, well, let I me did. say, I'll, I'll say something more conciliatory while continuing <laughs> sure. to think that this is, that, that, that you're wrong in a profound way. I mean, I, look, <laughs> I, I, I think the ultimate question, as I said before, is still the truth question, right? And so yeah. I have this sort of moral aversion to, you know, non-transcendent religion. Um, but if you took if you took the whole of human history and basically removed the Jews and Jesus from it, then I would say that pantheism is the mo is the religious picture most likely to be true. And even even though I wouldn't like it, <laughs> you know, or yeah, I, maybe yeah. I would like it, right? I mean, like you know, I I have. You know, I, I can I can see the appeal and the raptures of nature and so on, just like just like anybody. So maybe I maybe I would like it. I have a pantheist streak, but ultimately, that you know, the the question where Christianity is concerned hinges on you know, do you look at the story of the Jewish people and then the story of Jesus of Nazareth and see plausible evidence that this is a case where transcendence has entered into human history and changed it? And if you do, then you should be. A Christian, or if you only see it with the Jews, you should be, you know, a Jew, I guess. Um, and if you don't see it, then I think pantheism is a is empirically a very reasonable religious posture. I think strict strict physical, you know, materialism is is ludicrous and insane. But pantheism is very empirically reasonable, and I would probably be a pantheist absent, you know, my sense of the credibility of the New Testament. Well, I think we're in total agreement about the plausibility of pantheism, and that's that's a space I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know we would land there. But so uh, looks like we've just about 
reached the end of this uh, of our time limit here. So I'm going to go ahead and pivot and ask you what Ezra likes to ask all of his guests at the end of the conversation, and that is to give three book recommendations to our audience. Well, let me let me give since we've been talking about religion, um, let me give one religious book recommendation, uh, which is a weird one, but a very short one. It's It has an incredibly long title. It's by the Polish philosopher Leszek Kolakowski, who is a really interesting figure because he's sort of someone who's extremely sympathetic to religious ideas without always necessarily being sort of unorthodox believer himself, which I think is a gives him an interesting perspective. And he wrote a book called Religion, colon, if there is no God, dot, 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 colon, on God, the devil, sin, and other worries of the so-called philosophy of religion. Um, and if you're put off by that title, um, but you are at all interested <laughs> by our conversation, you shouldn't be put off by the title. You should look at the book because it's a really interesting sort of sketch of some of these, it touches on a lot of these questions we've been talking about, sort of, you know, the role of mystical faith versus intellectual faith, all kinds of things in a very, in a very slim book. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a religious book recommendation. And what else should I recommend? I'll, I'll recommend Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. So the Kolakowski book is really short. Black Lamb and Gray Falcon is incredibly long. It's a book that West wrote while taking a trip through what was then Yugoslavia, the Balkans, in between World War I and World War II. Um, and it is a, it's an insane and brilliant and insane book. Um, it's an example of a totally idiosyncratic writerly personality coming to gr grips with a mix of cultures that she by turns loathes excessively and loves excessively. Um, but in the context of sort of, you know, the, the, the weird world, uh, in between World War One and World War Two, And I think it's a good, it's a kind of book that doesn't fit into any orthodoxy. Um, she, she doesn't represent any faction that's sort of active in our cultural politics today. And in many ways, those are the best kind of books to read to sort of escape the trap of the moment, to encounter someone who's really smart and has a really weird way of looking at the world that doesn't fit into our our current categories. I'll, I'll make a third book recommendation. I think um, Christians tend to recommend books by C.S. Lewis. Um, and I think the best book, the book by C.S. Lewis that I would recommend to people is a book called The Great Divorce, which is about a little trip that the narrator takes into hell, or maybe it's purgatory, or maybe it's hell. The book is a little bit uncertain about this, but it's sort of a portrait of um, eternal damnation that I think, you know, we were talking earlier about the various ways in which the modern world thinks that it can't go back to religious ideas. And I think one of the religious ideas that people feel like they can't go back to is the idea of the possibility of hell. Um, and so if you want to read an interesting, possibly compelling portrait that in effect makes a case for a kind of hell, read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. So those are three somewhat random recommendations. All right, Ross Douthat, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to Ross for being here. Thank you to our producer and engineer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>